Would you please turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 16. Luke's Gospel, chapter 16. I'm going to read verses 14 through 18 this morning. Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. I remind you, this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Now there was a rich man, pardon me, now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now let's pray. Father, we pray that you would grant us understanding of your word, and we pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit of God. We pray, O God, that you would not permit us in any way to leave without having having been impacted by the Word of God. And we ask, Lord, that you would lead us and teach us your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, by way of contextual considerations, there's a concentration in this passage on wealth, the love of the world, of resources, of of what one possesses, of of loving wealth and riches and the physical things of this life more than God. And it, it marks the individuals who are listening to what Jesus is saying here. And of course, we know in verse 14, the Pharisees are listening. Although these directions are primarily given to the disciples, we know that Jesus is saying these things to them for their own edification and growth and avoidance of sin, mortification, vivification of righteousness. But it's also for those Pharisees who are listening to Jesus that they might hear and be warned by his words. And it marks them. It it, it marks who they are as individuals. In chapter 14, Jesus has said unequivocally that uh, unless you you love the Lord Jesus Christ more than anything else in your life, unless you love the Lord Jesus Christ more than a wife and husband, children, more than father, mother, possessions, resources, things, unless you love the Lord Jesus Christ more than anything this world affords, You cannot be his disciple. We need to think about that as disciples. We are to have an undistracted, wholehearted devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, the reality of the fact is, none of us can meet that standard. And yet God in his grace, according to his grace, is enabling and helping and prompting and pressing, encouraging, uplifting pushing forward and working out as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, he is at work in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. And he turns our paltry service and our failing efforts at following him and being his disciples, he turns them into a beautiful, glorious tapestry of his grace and pressing us forward and keeping us in the midst of this life, and despite our sins. He has shared with them these wonderful examples of the prodigal son. He has, talked, he has spoken with them concerning the, the, uh, the, 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 the lost coin, the lost sheep, the prodigal son, the unjust steward, our manager, all of these examples in all of these ways, Christ has spoken about these men who are watching and listening to him. They are Pharisees and they love money. 
They have embraced money and they say that they are experts in the keeping of the law. And yet, they, while they are excelling with regard to the law from an external position, internally they are not in any way keeping the law of God at all. It has had no impact upon their heart. And so on the outside, they look good, and they want the approbation of mankind. And we are told in verse 14, they were lovers of money, and they were listening to all these things, and they were scoffing at them, at him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. These are men who would justify themselves before people. But internally, with regard to their heart, and a wonderful phrase we've been discussing on Wednesday nights, and Bible studies, uh, despite the, the circumcision of the heart, that is not something that they have desired at all. Rather, they are, they are wonderful men who have kept the law of God externally. They are circumcised physically, yet internally they are not in any way serving the Lord God. They are rather serving the dictates of man. They look good on the outside, but inside they are whitewashed sepulchers. They're filled with dead things and coldness and the grave and the rot that undermines them as individuals and undermines their would-be justification before man. In the wonderful story of the prodigal, the they were the individuals who would like the older who would be like the older brother who would say My brother has come in from the field, but yet he has squandered everything that you have given him, Father. He does not deserve grace. We should not give him mercy nor celebrate his return to you. Jesus has been ministering to the tax collectors, to the sinners, to the worst dregs of society. He has eaten supper with them. He has loved them and sat in table fellowship with them. And they have ridiculed him for that. They have they have con- condemned him and said, he is one who sits with sinners. And Jesus has shared this prodigal son story to show that is the attitude of their own hearts. He has spoken of the lost sheep and of the lost coin and said that God himself delights over one who is found. And this is what he has said himself. That God in heaven itself, there is joy over the return of one sinner. They've heard all these things and they have sought to justify their own position. And now when Jesus has been sharing these things with them, They're scoffing. And that brings us to one of three points. The first of which is God knows your heart. God knows your heart. There is nothing hidden from his sight. In Luke 23, verse 35, we're told that the crowds were, as Jesus is hanging upon the tree, as his body is laid out upon that tree, and he has received this crown of thorns and blood pouring down his face, as he thirsts, as he hungers, as the sin of mankind is placed upon him and imputed to him the guilt of all of our sins laid upon him there upon the cross, what did he say? Father, it is finished. To you, I commend my spirit. The Lord Jesus suffered in his body, in his soul there on that cross. And as he suffered for sinner's sake, what did the crowds do? They scoffed. They sneered. It's the same exact word as we encounter in verse 14 in our text this morning. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. They're already doing what they will do supremely there in the cross, there before the cross. Think about that. As the eternal Son of God offers himself as a Lamb of God, spotless for sinner's sake, what did those who should have received him, those who said that they waited with an expectation of God's perfect provision of a Messiah who would take away the sins of the world, what did they do? They scoffed. They sneered because Jesus was not what they wanted. The Messiah of God, the Lamb of God, was not what they wanted. They heard all these things, we are told in verse 15 or 14. 
There was nothing about what Christ said that was in some way hidden from them. It was not that he whispered this to his disciples. It wasn't that he said it only to this group on this side and that they didn't hear. He said it clearly. He said it audibly. They were within hearing. They understood fully what he said to such an extent. They understand it had a particular uh, uh, um, uh, connotation with regard to themselves. And they knew it and they were cut to the quick. And what did they do? They sneered and ridiculed and mocked. That sneering comes only when they are convicted that they themselves are the ones that are in view in Christ's condemnation of their sins. They heard all these things. They heard the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son. They heard the unjust manager. They heard it all. They heard verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wrath. And I'll tell you, there there are many people in the world, and even within the church, who hear the things of God, and though they are cut to the quick and they hear and understand its application to themselves, they do nothing about it. What is that an indication of? Opposition against God. A distaste for Christ. An unwillingness to hear God's truth. An embrace of worldliness. and A a lack of courage as it calls one to a commitment to Jesus Christ that is unbridled, unmistaken, wholehearted, fully engaged, forsaking all other things, and embracing the Lord Jesus Christ, living for Him with courage and faithfulness in this world. That is what God has called you to. You should absolutely fear when we can hear the Word of God and we sneer at it. You may not physically do that, but when we hear the Word of God and we mock it, and, well, God knows I can't be that good and God knows that I'm a sinner and God knows and and will excuse me in some way because he understands the difficulty of my circumstances. He sees that I've I've done my best. He sees how how much good I have done and, and what progress I've made. The question is, will you obey God? Will you obey his word? Are you a servant of Jesus Christ? Are you a disciple who has forsaken mammon and money and resources and the world itself and life itself, even your own life, for the sake of gaining Jesus Christ? These worthless religious persons of Jesus' day who would put, frankly, each and every one of us to shame by way of their external righteousness. These were law-keeping men. They did not break the moral law, at least externally. They did not do adulterous things. They did not, they did not walk about in a way that was in any way deceitful. They, they walked before God, before God's people with a full intention that their lives would be on full display for all to see. With regard to the law externally, they obeyed it perfectly. And yet their hearts were far from God. They did not obey from the heart. They heard all these things. Well, the truth is that we cannot, mankind cannot understand the truth if, in fact, God the Holy Spirit is not willing to lift the veil and enable enlightenment and, 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 and an understanding of the Word of God. He must make tender our conscience, make tender our heart, and enable us to believe. And for the word of God to pierce into the hardness of our hearts and cause that word to come home. Oftentimes the church thinks that the way to reach unbelieving people is to provide a a lovely atmosphere, to make soft seats, to make certain that we have coffee that is delicious and the best brands, to make certain that we have delicious snacks that people should be more welcoming, that we should have uh, uh, 
a, a lovely uh, exterior facade so that it would be welcoming to people to come in. And we should make the church much less like a church and far more like a, a coffee house. Well, there are all sorts of concessions that the church makes for the world in order to make the world more comfortable. It's very much with the result that H. Richard Niebuhr was true. It was right in what he said about the liberal church of today. We believe, the church believes in a God without wrath, bringing men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through a ministry of a Christ without a cross. When the world accommodates When the church accommodates the world, we're left with nothing but empty husks and a Christless eternity. For these unbelieving men, as they hear the words of Christ, as he expounds upon his word, what do they hear? They hear nonsense and they hear foolishness. Why? Because they cannot appraise spiritual things. Because they are lost, because their minds, their hearts are not redeemed, because they are lost in their sins and they are opposed to God. I tell you, dear friends, we are in a small congregation and I love this church. This church has labored and persevered and God has blessed this church. God's hand has been upon this congregation season after season after season. I have seen God bless and grow and God pour his grace into this congregation I have seen men and women serve the living God. I have heard wonderful testimonies of God's grace at work in their lives. I wish that this church was bigger. I wish that this church was growing larger and more fervently and and fast. But I've seen growth every year. And I've seen the way that the Lord has grown this church in ways that are tangible, in ways that will last God has not gathered a large and massive crowd uh, through manipulative means or the denigration of the gospel of Jesus Christ or the, or the, 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 the watering down of the message. God has built this church in his truth. And I'll, I'll put to you this morning, if we, if we struggle to see church growth and if we, if we long for that, I'll say, I'll say, pray to the Lord and ask the Lord to grow the church in his way and in his time. And then submit to his will and faithfully persevere and promise the Lord, as for my part, I'm going to continue to serve you, Lord. This is where your providence has brought me, and I'm going to remain faithful to you. But if we struggle to understand why, and why aren't gobs of people pouring into Christ's church? And I'll tell you, our struggles are the same as every other faithful church throughout New England. I know that for a fact. Why does the church struggle to grow? We shouldn't be surprised at all, and we should have a ready answer in light of the passage here before us this morning. The Pharisees, lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. If they scoffed at Jesus, think of the ministry of Christ, a three-year ministry proclaiming his truth through uh, thousands and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people heard him. As much as we love Jesus and in as much as we believe that what Christ has said is true and as much as we think that sitting under his ministry, directly hearing from Christ, what an immense and glorious eternal privilege. But to an unbelieving mind, all that they hear is foolishness. The wisdom of God is to the world foolishness. The ungodly and wicked mind, the lawless man, when they hear the word of God, the life-giving power of the word of God, to them, what do they hear? Nothing. It makes no sense. They cannot understand because they cannot appraise spiritual things. Because God has closed their mind and closed their ears and covered up their eyes so that they cannot understand. Because they are unwilling to believe. They have no interest in Christ, and thus they have no part in Christ. Our accommodations to the world should only go so far, dear friends, as we serve the living God. And as we serve the living God, we should continue in the old paths, the ancient way, 
and trust that God, our ancient God, still uses his ancient word to bring new life. J.C. Ryle, one of the great bishops in England in the Anglican Church, said this about this passage. The truth of this solemn saying of Jesus appears on every side of us. We have only to look around the world and mark the things on which most people set their affections to see what Jesus says has proved a hundred ways, riches, honors, rank, and pleasure. These are the chief objects for which the greater part of mankind are living. And even the Pharisees and the religious persons of Jesus' day did and do. If these are the very things which God declares to be empty and vanity and the love of them, he warns us to beware. Praying and Bible reading and holy living and repentance and faith and grace and communion with God, these are the things which few people care at all about, yet these are the things which God in his Bible is ever urging to our attention. The disagreement between these two things is glaring and painful and appalling. What God calls good, we call evil, and what God calls evil, we call good. But the more entirely we are of one mind with God as to what he calls good, the better we are prepared for the day of judgment. To love what God loves, to hate what God hates, to approve what God approves, this is the highest style of Christianity. The moment we find ourselves honoring anything which in the sight of God is lightly esteemed, we may be sure that there is something wrong in our souls. The moment we fall in love with mammon, the moment we begin to give more of ourselves to money, to business, the moment we set aside the Lord Jesus Christ and and daily devotion and prayer and instructing our families in the things of God for the sake of entertaining our families, our children, our wives, husbands, is something wrong in our soul. The moment we begin to love family connections or others in relationship to us more than Jesus Christ, there is something wrong in our soul. The moment we would rather have, you put, you put whatever you want in that blank, anything more than Jesus, there is something wrong in our soul. <clears throat> God knows your heart. God knows the depths of your heart. Everything that we have done, whether our bodies or thoughts that we have had in our minds. He knows why we have done what we have done and why we have thought the way that we have thought. He knows why we have not done what we ought to have done. And he knows what we secretly wish we could have done. He knows our inner coveting. He knows our every secret sin. He knows our doubts. He knows our fears. And we will not give an accounting to man on the last day of judgment. We will only give an accounting of our thoughts and our lives and our sins to God. Are you prepared, dear friend, to meet the living God? Have you served him? Are you serving him? Do you love him? Yes, imperfectly. Yes, in as much as a sinner can. Yes, while absolutely relying upon the Lord Jesus Christ to make what we offer to God which is imperfect and weak and failing, often struggling nonetheless, but trusting that the Holy Spirit of God is taking what we offer to Christ and making it whole and perfect by applying Christ and his righteousness to it all. The second thing is that God, God's law reveals our heart. God's law reveals our heart. All of these various parables on the subject of money, Jesus is showing that he, the eternal God, knows what is in the heart of these men. And these, he says in verse 14, you, you are lovers of money, you were listening to all these things and they were scoffing at him. But he says something more. With, he said a great deal about money, but he has another subject to bring up to show them the law of God and how the law of God should cut them to the quick. And we'll show them, these lovers of the law, will show them, the law of God will, what kind of men they really are. Verse 18. 
Verse 17, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. These men had a problem not only with money, but also with divorce. In Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, it says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, remember that phrase, because he has found some indecency in her, remember that, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and it goes on to expound upon case law. Finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her. What does that mean? Does it mean because I might find a, a, a mole on my, my wife's neck, like I have right here? She doesn't have one. I do. If I find a mole there and I say, I, you know, that's indecent. Uh, that's, that's not lovely to me. I, I don't like that. I'm going to give her a certificate of divorce. Or let's say I marry the wife of my youth and on the marriage night I'm, I'm not impressed. Perhaps, perhaps these Pharisees, when they got home after their first day of work, they came to the supper table and the wife was there and she made dinner and he didn't like what was served. You know, she, she, she burned the casserole. And he didn't like the fact that she was busy and sweeping and rushing about. And, 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 and so he decided, this is not what I want. And so he gives her a certificate of divorce because he has found some indecency in her. There's something he doesn't like. Jesus expounds upon this passage in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Marital unfaithfulness. He has, Jesus has carefully interpreted what is, what Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 and 2 are saying. The problem is the Pharisees have taken it, and it was exceedingly difficult for a woman to get divorced. Even if she was mistreated, her life was in question, she was abused and beaten, her husband was unfaithful, she would have a very, very, very difficult time divorcing that man. But for males in a particular school of Pharisaical thought, those men before Jesus, they believed that a man could, for any reason, give a certificate of divorce to his wife at any point. And he was free to marry someone else, more acceptable. In fact, rabbis even said that if, if the dinner, literally, according to what I just said a few moments ago, if the dinner was burned, he had a right to give her a writ of divorce. That if she didn't please him sexually, she, he could give her a writ of divorce. I know that may be offensive, but that's that's the story behind this passage and behind the thinking of these men. You know, just just in case you're thinking something this morning, you know, well, geez, it's awfully difficult as a wife to be told to submit to my husband in the Lord. It's awfully difficult to hear the Bible's teaching on, on divorce and on remarriage and on uh, marital obligations, husbands to wives, and etc., etc. I was reading from a, an atheist historian recently, and his opinion was that uh, as he examines history, the history of mankind, he said uh, in the Dark Ages and, and, and during the medieval period, and even before that, that especially women were mistreated, and that the, the lame, the 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 disabled were treated like third world beings and they were they were relegated to the trash heap of history frankly they were often killed and children that did not please the mothers or fathers upon birth were often exterminated he said the one thing that made a difference in the world was christianity this is a non-believing person an atheist doesn't believe in god he said women were mistreated children were mistreated the bruised and broken in society were mistreated. And it wasn't until Christianity came that the, the value of life was 
all of a sudden a, 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 a cultural transforming philosophy and theology. These men were making a mockery of the ethic that God had provided, that all men, women, children were created in the image of God, that all have equal standing before God, are co-equal heirs of life in Christ Jesus, the New Testament tells us. That Adam and Eve were born, each walked with, or, or were created, each walked with God in the garden, in fellowship directly with God, male and female together. The problem is the Pharisees had taken Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, and they believed that if they found anything in the woman that was in any way offensive or he ruined his food or something else, if there was anything at all, didn't like her hair, didn't like her nails, that for any reason he could give her a writ of divorce. Not so easy for her, but he could. And so here are the Pharisees standing before Jesus. They believe that they can give divorces, papers to any wife that they find that hasn't in some way, in every way, pleased them. One particular school, the school of, of, uh, of Hillel. And Jesus is correcting their misinterpretation for their own benefit of the law of God. And yet these are men who, according to verse 15, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. What is highly esteemed by men? Well, we could think in a lot of ways, drinking, hooking up, sex without commitment. Yes, divorce, because I'm dissatisfied and I want to go on to the new and next thing, the better thing, whether male or female. A world in this day and age embraces divorce, abortion, all manner of all manner of anything that would break up the family or disturb the that nuclear family that God has created, male and female, to be joined together, only them and no other, not same-sex marriage, but only a male marrying a female and bearing children. This is the way God has called human beings to be and for marriage to be. And yet we are a society that embraces sex without commitment, recreational drug use, Hollywood stars and starlets who would tell us what we, how we should live and what moral mores we should have, social influencers, TikTok fame, being the biggest blowhard in the break room, having the nicest car, being really good at video games, thug life, success, Full bank accounts, free money from the government, stimulus checks. Not that stimulus checks are all that bad, but we have to ask the question, who's paying for it? And isn't the principle behind it that people can simply give us money and we'll vote for them? Don't be fooled. All of this garbage is an abomination to God. Parents, do you tell your children this when they waste their time? When they'd rather do things that are worthless? Do you tell them, do you know son? Do you know daughter? That's an abomination to God. When we would rather not have anything to do with the Lord, when we would rather not go to worship, when we would rather not have any, show any love to Jesus Christ, it's an abomination to God. What does the Lord love? The Lord loves mercy. He loves justice. He loves humility. We're commanded to love justice and act just, or to love mercy and act justly and to walk humbly with our God. He loves love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. He loves self-control. He loves truthfulness. He loves a forgiving spirit. He loves when we serve him. He loves when we have an eye on eternity and we live for God in the course of our days. He loves when we wade into the difficulty of relationships and we teach our children and we teach one another 
and we teach our spouses and we teach and preach to our own soul that we are not our own, but we belong to the Lord, body and soul. Thirdly and finally, God's good news does for you what God's law cannot. The law discovers sin. The law, the law shows us sin. The law leads us, as we'll learn in the Wednesday night Bible study as we work our way through Romans, the law leads us into a, a, the conclusion that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The law, the law brings us to the conclusion, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The law leads us to the precipice to the point where we finally say, I must believe in Jesus Christ because there is no other way. Oh, my sins, they condemn me. The law has destroyed me. The law has come in and shown me how sinful I am. But the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ shows me that God has provided for my great need. And he has saved my soul. The good news, the gospel does what the law cannot. The law cannot in any way show us how we can achieve life and mercy and forgiveness with God. The law only says you are condemned before God. The law can be used by wicked men like Pharisees who would, who would wield it in an external way to impress you and to say, look at me, look at how good I am. And yet the law, if rightly applied, if understood with the eyes of the Holy Spirit that he gives us by faith to understand and to believe, will come to the only logical conclusion, I have sinned against God. I am, I deserve condemnation. God is right and he is just in nailing me to a cross and calling forth my blood and my body broken. But that cannot in any way atone fully for my sins. And so he is right to send me for eternal judgment in the fires of hell where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where the worm is not quenched and the fire does not go out. Conscious, eternal suffering cast out of the presence of God. But there is good news, and that good news has been proclaimed since John the Baptist had come. And what was he? He was sneered and ridiculed too, wasn't he? By the same group of Pharisees. And the prophets of old, weren't they, when they would proclaim that there would be a day when, when there would be a virgin who would, who would give birth to Emmanuel, were they not ridiculed as well? Didn't Jesus say, you killed the prophets, your fathers did? I'll tell you, this is what Jesus is saying about the Word of God. He's saying that those 39 books in the Old Testament, that every single one of them is right. He is saying these are the words of God. The law and the prophets, in verse 16, were proclaimed until John. He's not saying they have no relevance anymore. He's not saying that they, uh, they, they were only particular for a particular church age and that they are no longer part of the church of uh, the, the age of grace. He's not drawing a delineation between them except to say the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. But now, since the time of the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, everyone is forcing their way into it. He's saying, now it has been made known to you, the gospel. I am the gospel is what he's saying. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. John spoke of me, and now here I am before you, and you sneer. You sneer. The word of God is to be received as the word of God. Old and New Testament. It's, I think it's fascinating that Jesus recites from memory 179 verses. All of it's from the Old Testament, obviously. 
10%, I'm, I'm, I'm told, of his ministry consisted of quotations from the Old Testament. As he's preaching the gospel, what is he preaching? The gospel of God from the beginning of the world. The law and the prophets came, and when Christ came, he expounded upon the word, and the message of the gospel of God's promise was there before them in their very sight. He appeals to virtually every single passage in the Old Testament that people greatly dislike, and he applies them to himself. And that's precisely what he's doing with the Pharisees today. He calls these scriptures the commandments of God. There's no mistaking Christ's perspective on the Old Testament. It's the word of God. And that's exactly what, how he refers to the word of God. He says, he uses that exact moniker as he appeals to the word of God. He even says that the scriptures cannot be broken. He says in verse 17, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. So the law is ongoing. The law has its particular Role. And in verse 18, he brings that role down with a hammer upon the hearts of the Pharisees. So what's the good news of the kingdom? And what is this violence that we're, we're hearing about? The good news of the kingdom of God is that entrance into the kingdom of God, entrance into the favor of God, receiving the grace of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of sins is not going to happen through the law, but rather it comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's good news because the Pharisees were trying to go to, to make loopholes that in some way they could justify themselves before man. I'll tell you, I can never justify myself before you because you know my sins and you know that at some point in the course of my ministry, I'm going to disappoint you. I will. I'll say something offensive or hurtful, something you may disagree with. And you'll do the same. As we interact together in, in congregational life. And that, that's what life is. We do the same in every relationship we have. At some point there are disappointments. We let one another down. We offend one another. We hurt. We wound. We disappoint. But we can never justify ourselves before each other. But we don't need to. God justifies us as an act of his free grace. We have no role in our justification before God at all. I can paint a picture for you of, of a righteous, godly, unattainable example. I can pull the wool over your eyes and present for you an example that you... That, 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 that seems almost unachievable. I could never tell you about my own personal struggles and issues, struggles with faith and doubts and my own need for perseverance and struggles with sins and temptations. But I'm not going to stand before you one day. I'm going to stand before the living God and give an account for my life. Each of us will. We don't need to justify ourselves before each other, although we do need to serve one another in a way that is pleasing to God and to forgive one another and bear with one another and place each other's needs above our own. Those are direct commands of God's word. But I ought to be absolutely concerned about my justification before God. I can't do anything to contribute to it I can't bring it to, to effect. All that I can do is receive by, grace, but receive by grace through the instrument of faith what Jesus Christ has done for me. And so by faith I receive. I receive Jesus Christ and I am justified in the exercise of that faith. God himself justifying me. The good news is the way into the kingdom is by God's gracious forgiveness of all those who repent and believe. The law can't forgive you. But the gospel of God, the broken lamb in his body, and the blood poured out upon the cross is my entrance into the kingdom of God and yours. 
Only Christ can forgive you. God can only forgive you through the work of Jesus Christ and no other means. Repentance and faith are the means by which we lay hold of the forgiveness of God that is offered in Christ Jesus. This violence that he speaks of in verse 16, that violence is the violence that we offer to ourselves. There is an opposition from the world and from our enemies and from family and friends who love us, but who who cannot understand the truth of God's word. The devil has an interest in not letting us leave his sphere of influence or his bond over us. He doesn't want to let us go from being enslaved to him and to the world over which he is the prince. It is only those who take seriously that they are disciples set apart for Jesus Christ, called into service to the Lord Jesus Christ, who by violence suppress, who who by violence seek to mortify their own sins and to cast off every encumbrance and every sin that would entangle us and to run the race that is set before us. You see, it's violence by which you and I, in the course of every single week, take up our cross and follow Jesus Christ by denying ourselves and determining as an act of our will, no matter what I feel, no matter how much the world calls me and compels me to come along, and no matter how much Satan buffets and besets my mind with doubts, I am going to serve the Lord. I'm going to embrace Jesus Christ as my Savior. And by God's grace, I'll never let go because He will never let go of me. And there is no, no other way of being justified in His sight. John Bunyan paints a wonderful picture of this verse of violence offered against the kingdom of God. In his book, The Pilgrim's Progress, John and I have read that through it recently. It says in this wonderful depiction, the interpreter took him and led him up toward the door of the palace. And behold, at the door stood a great company of men desiring to go in, but they didn't dare to go in. There also sat a man at a little distance from the door at a table with a book and his inkhorn before him to take the name of him that should enter therein. He saw also that in the doorway stood many men in armor to keep it, being resolved to do to the men that would enter whatever hurt and mischief they could. Now was Christian somewhat in amaze. At last, when every man started back for fear of the armed men, Christian saw one man of very stout countenance come up to the man that sat there to write, saying, Set down my name, sir. When he had done, he saw the man draw his sword, put on a helmet upon his head, and he rushed toward the door. And upon the armed men who laid upon him with deadly force, but the man not at all discouraged, fell to cutting and hacking and fiercely. So after he had received and given many wounds to those that attempted to keep him out, he cut his way through them all and pressed forward into the palace, in which there was a pleasant voice heard from those that were within, even of those that walked upon the top of the palace, saying, Come in, come in, eternal glory you shall win. So he went in and was clothed with the same garments as they. Then Christian smiled and said, I I think I really know the meaning of this. We have lots of armed men and women around us who would would keep us from the kingdom of God, don't we? Non-Christian friends who would love for us to just come aside and use coarse language and act like pagans and act like the world and blend right in. Make no mistake, they're at war against your faith. They would undo you if they could. There are other loving persons in our lives who we love and we adore and they speak soft and gentle words to us, but they come often and say, why do you believe this? How can you believe that God died on the cross? And that blood had to be poured out to appease the wrath of of God. We think they mean kindness, but no, they mean harm. We love them. We cherish them. But they cannot understand 
unless God the Holy Spirit opens their eyes to see. And until they do, they would love for you to turn away from the faith that you have and become just like them. We also have to wage violence and warfare against ourselves. Because my mind and my heart is often opposed to God and righteousness and doing what is right in God's sight and doing what is harmful to my flesh, but what is righteous in God's eyes. And I often, in my own sin, will embrace what is detestable in the sight of God and what is appealing in my sight. But God calls us to something different. He calls and he commands us to, by violence, force our way in. And that violence is against your own mind and against your own heart and your own body. As we take up our cross and follow Jesus Christ. What does the Apostle Paul say? I, I, he says, I, I berate my body that I might bring it into submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. My dear friend, that is what God is calling you and me to do. Thomas Watson will have the last word this morning. We must offer violence to heaven in regard to the difficulty of the work, taking a kingdom. We must be pulled out of another kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. To get out of the state of nature is hard. And when that is done and we are cut off from the wild olive and implanted into Jesus Christ, there's still new work to do, new sins to mortify, new temptations to resist, new graces to quicken. A Christian must not only get faith, but go from faith to faith. This will not be done without violence. We must offer violence to heaven in regard to the violent assaults made against us. Our own hearts oppose us. This is a strange paradox. Man naturally desires happiness, yet opposes it. He desires to be saved, yet hates that holy violence which must save him. Brothers and sisters, I offer to you God's call. Lay aside whatever encumbers your faith, whatever inhibits your faith, whatever, whatever prohibits your faith. And by violence, take the kingdom of God and cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ and do not let go. Let's pray.